0: This is Concepts where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world, Phil Shea and Steve Rose. Welcome to the Concepts podcast. Welcome. Today. We are talking about internalized capitalism, internalized. which I thought I wanted to talk about. I do want to talk about it, but the thing is, it's not, there are no books that I could find on this topic specifically. There were two kind of amateurish videos talking about it, and the only people that seem to be talking a lot about it is the subreddit Anti-Work. And us. So I kind of had to hobble together a few different the pieces of it and some of the background which i'm not super well versed in i think you will be better at this than me for those things but it all kind of works in so internalized capitalism you heard it
1: here first
0: you heard it? Here you heard it? Yeah, sure. We're, we're trailblazing with amateur theory. Trailblazing the concept today. So we have to break down what internalization means and then yeah. what we mean by capitalism and what, what kind of things we're internalizing with that. Trying to define internalization, I had to go through a series of steps to get to uh, the one that seemed the most <laughs> apt. How would, how would you approach this? Well, uh, my
1: basic understanding of it is that it's, uh, well, first we have to define both of these processes, internalizing something and capitalism. And capitalism is basically having your money making money.
0: I was just asking for you to define internalization just that we can get on a capitalism after that. But what what did you say for internalization? I didn't catch it.
1: I guess it's a psychological process of taking something into your psyche and like learning it, for example, like you can internalize negative self-talk. If somebody, for example, in your life is constantly critical, criticizing you for not being good enough or that you are. Are worthless and that you're always just messing up. And if you hear that growing up, you can internalize the voice of that person. For example, it's often parental figures. And now you're going through your life. You're the one saying that to yourself. You'll find yourself uh, overthinking, not doing something.
0: So what you're saying is you're taking something from the outside yep. and you're bringing it inside yourself to be you absorb it. You
1: absorb it. And you you talk to yourself in the same negative
0: tone. In a similar fashion. Yeah. Right. I was trying to find a, one that would fit with this particular concept because there there yeah. are multiple interpretations and fields for internalization. So in psychology, they are talking about how it's the outcome of conscious reasoning uh, where you take a subject and internalize it. So in this context, it's talking about religious conversion or moral conversion, mm-hmm. taking the values of that and bringing it inside consciously, trying to aspire to them. I would argue that's Similar to that, but not so conscious. Yeah, I, I have a working definition after, but I'm just, this is my steps were just to show my homework, I guess, show my work. I started with psychology, then jumped to sociology, I guess then internalized sexism and then finally to internalized oppression so it seemed that one seems the most apt so in sociology they're talking about how it's in integrating attitudes values standards and opinions of others into your identity or sense of self which that that seems to work somewhat but then i started thinking about internalized internalized sexism because or internalized racism i guess those two where it seems hmm. It almost seems unfalsifiable at times because it's like for internalized sexism, for instance, they're talking about how you're you're kind of conforming to the male gaze. You're trying to do what men have kind of in this theory brainwashed you to want. It's not that you actually want it. It's that you've just been told to want this. And so you've not mm-hmm. got your own wants. You're just wanting what you've been told to want. And in that, I guess, is kind of where we're going to um, internalize oppression, which just is the broader The broader topic of it, which is internalized oppression is a concept in which an oppressed group uses the methods of the oppressed group against itself. It occurs when one group perceives an inequality of value relative to another group and desires to be more like the highly valued group. So I guess one instance of this might be like skin whitening creams in Asia. It's very popular there uh, because they're, I guess, seeing a seeing white people on media all over the place and wanting to lighten their skin. Or maybe for some reason, they just thought that lighter skin is better. I don't really know. I've not asked them that much or the scholars about it. But this leads to my working definition which is taking ideas from the outside world, consciously or not, bringing them into your self-concept to the point that you may not even be aware of their sources. It becomes like a fish in the sea, not realizing that they're in water because they've never been outside of it. They they have no um, reckoning. They have no reference. So it's just, this is how it is. I love it. And it's unquestioned. That's, I guess, the level of internalization, particularly for capitalism, because we, are, we have been born into capitalist systems and we've just been so completely surrounded by them. So then we have to then move on to what capitalism is, right? So I think you uh, you broke up when you said that. So can you repeat what you were saying? Because I think what I heard sounded on in the right direction.
1: Yeah. So this is a common subject in sociology, as you're quite aware, especially the sociology of work. The simplest definition of capitalism is your money's making money. You reinvest capital to make more money.
0: Uh, money's <laughs> so making rich, money. i so rich. My money's yeah. making money. <laughs>
1: Which really, it, it, it makes you sound pretty baller. When-
0: <laughs> like just putting it in the bank.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, you're just making interest off your money. But a, a true capitalist is making a lot of interest off of their money to the point where they, they can be a venture capitalist, for example, and you live off the, the dividends or proceeds of your investments in said businesses or stock market or, or whatever it may be. I don't know too much about the corporate world, so this is kind of the limits of my my understanding.
0: All right. For those of you unaware, we've had some technical difficulties here, and I am going to have to kind of say this for the second or third (laughs) time. Okay, so capitalism, what I was expanding that expanding that, or just the basics of it is taking capital from a low yield area and putting it into a high yield area. So instead of just keeping it in the bank at some like, uh, I guess a fraction of a percent interest, you could then put it into, I don't know, Bitcoin or building a factory or starting a business or selling a product. These would be seen as a higher yield. So supposing you're able to make them be profitable, uh, but they're a bit more risky. So obviously the higher their yield, the more risk a lot of the times or else or everyone would just go to those things, right? Where I'm going with capitalism was my working definition, I just, I'm going to read it. Focusing on the valuation of everything in terms of monetary value and production, laziness in this context is an unforgivable sin unless you've quote unquote earned it by being rich enough. Uh, The priestly class of this church of the economy are of course economists and finance experts and I think it ties into the Protestant work ethic and the flawed conclusions that that morality leads to. You said you were thinking about Protestantism recently?
1: Yeah. In preparation for talking about internalized capitalism, I thought uh, this would be a perfect kind of history to it. And the historical roots of capitalism being in this Protestant work ethic uh, that was written about by Max Weber, prominent sociologist in the the
0: book. Your favorite, your boy. Maxie, yeah,
1: yep. my boy Max, uh, writes about it <laughs> in <laughs> the, the Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Back when they didn't really have very flashy book titles, <laughs> and and uh, the the core idea in this book is that it's. It, it, uh, Protestants who came from Europe to America brought with them this unshakable work ethic and it was based in asceticism which was a denial of one's self and worldly pleasures in the pursuit of building God's kingdom on earth now that was the kind of the religious or theological interpretation of what this meant and so everyone just worked really really hard weathered the pain and discomfort of life to to build large businesses and all the money, went back into the business because they weren't buying the Apple watches and all the rest of it, because they weren't about the possessions.
0: Frivolities. Yeah. They, they, right. were,
1: they were not about worldly possessions. It was just work hard, build God's kingdom on earth. And if you're successful, it shows that you are destined for heaven.
0: What this makes me think of is uh, Stoicism, what people think Stoicism is, which is to never enjoy things. Asceticism yeah. is what I think people think Stoicism is. Yeah. Uh, do you Do you know what I mean by talking about the, the flawed conclusions that Protestantism can lead to, the Protestant work ethic?
1: Well, I was getting there. And so it... Okay. This is kind of where things flipped. And this is what Weber's writing about is when it became it transitioned from this theological non-connection to material possessions and it flipped into actually being all about material possessions. And so you had the, the same work ethic, but rather than being uh, about not buying things and then always reinvesting all of your money back into your business, it was about purely for the sake of materialism and consumption. And so after World War II, there was an explosion in... Con-
0: How does that follow though? Because like, if, isn't it just a perversion, like a deviation away from the Protestant work ethic? Yeah. Because my my flaw that I see from it, it, actually comes from the theory itself, not from the corruption. But yeah, I guess we'll get back to that later. So sorry, World War II, right. there's a, a huge boom afterwards, of course, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this is kind of where the the capitalist spirit in, in terms of working hard turned into working hard for the sake of not getting into heaven but for the sake of having a lot of stuff and then you see rampant consumer culture building after world war ii and you have uh, advertising starting at that time with the uh, new media things were getting away from radio and becoming more uh, visual and television was developing and, and so we have the whole um, advertisement industry and and all of this. So that's where we get into consumer culture. And that's where the perversion of the Protestant ethic happens. And then uh, in this internalized capitalism really becomes about superficial consumption. But it looked like you were critiquing something beyond just the consumer culture element and something inherent in the Protestant ethic itself.
0: Yeah, because maybe I'm misunderstanding this, but from my understanding of the Protestant work ethic is that they believe that, yeah, you want to build God's kingdom on earth. But on the other hand, it's also saying that those who God favors, those who God smiles upon for having done such good work will receive greater rewards because as we know, we can all work really hard, but only some of us are going to become rich. Only so many can. So the ones that do were the ones that were favored by God because they had pleased him in such a way that he rewarded them by showing them, Hey, here's, here's some awesome fruits of your labor. Yes. So the issue then became that the richer you were, the more just and moral you were. So if you're old money, you just assumed you were better in God's eyes than yeah. other people because you were rewarded and God hasn't taken this away. Even if you're just part of the leisure class, and you're not doing anything. You might think you're doing something because you've never really done anything before in your life. So these sheltered people think that, They're more just and they're producing more for society. And I guess libertarians and laissez-faire neoliberals, they seem to believe this, that um, the, the top class is giving more than everybody else. And that's why they have disproportionate amounts of wealth. In some cases, you could argue that, but it seems to be a really kind of flimsy theory.
1: That's exactly it. When uh, if you want to zoom into the actual flaws of the Protestant ethic itself as in its original form, it's highly anxiety-producing. Oh yeah, because your material wealth—not in terms of consumption, but your actual business success—was an indicator of whether or not you were destined for heaven or not. Like it, yeah, it was yeah, so it's highly anxiety-producing.
0: It's like this fuck. Oh, okay, I can't say that. It's like <laughs> this crazy. <laughs> It's like this crazy keeping up with the Joneses on a spiritual level. Yes. I, oh, it's not that I have to be better than them. It's just that I have to get into heaven, and it, like for some reason, there's a limited amount of space in heaven. So, uh, I gotta, I gotta beat Joe over there. Yeah. You,
1: you don't know. It's this, it, it creates a, a state of uncertainty where you're always comparing yourself and like, well, he's for sure getting into heaven. Look at Look at what he built. His business is thriving. You know, that blacksmith Joe over there, he, he's really getting in, but I don't know about myself. And so you're always comparing yourself potentially. I don't know. I'd be very interested to know the psychology of these early Protestants and how they coped with the uncertainty of this theological predicament.
0: I don't know. I guess stoicism having to just buckle down and work even harder. Like mm-hmm. it's kind of what we're currently doing, man. What, just look at us. We, I have to read this quote, which is the one I said that this this is largely based off of, and it's a checklist. Mm-hmm. How do you know you have internalized capitalism? One, you determine your worth based on your productivity, which includes how much money you earn, not just the work produced. Mm-hmm. Two, you feel guilty for resting. Three, your primary concern is to make yourself profitable. Four, you neglect your health. And five, you think hard work is what brings happiness. In that, the best response, this was a, a Reddit thread. There was responses that I was coming through a little bit. The best one I found was combine that with depression and you have the current generation. I love it. And that's that's where I was tying this into. But the best rebut to that was that they actually disagree with the last one, the you think hard work is what brings happiness. So this person, the rebuttal was that hard work totally does bring happiness. There are a few things as good as seeing the tangible results of your labor. However, capitalism naturally withholds the products of our labor from us, and so it deprives us of that feeling. For instance, this this land project I've been moving towards and have not talked about on the podcast yet is about buying a big, t- big chunk of land and building stuff there with my hands and having good internet and having a space where people can go and just kind of chill and hang out and work on stuff together if we choose to.
1: Yes, definitely not a commune by the way if anyone's wondering
0: no it's not not a commune it's not going to be jointly owned because i've i think that might be one of the steps where it goes wrong i would need to look further into it but with that <laughs> just
1: in my mind it's like my disclaimer that it's not a commune definitely makes it sound more like a commune
0: oh yeah well you're the one saying <laughs> it I, I, people automatically jump to that but uh, it is what it is yeah it's just basically low cost living with good internet that, yeah. and space for people to hang out so like coming and going i have a lot of international friends who would be interested in coming in, staying for a month maybe. But yeah, I'd like like to have that to be an option. But one of the things I think about when considering this is that people talk about, complain about how it'll be a lot of work, but like if if you have very low taxes, you can grow a lot of your own food and uh, you are generating your own electricity, then the costs are so low that you don't have to worry about being constantly productive people also have said that like it's too much work to have to build like a hut i'm going to start learning how to build stuff by doing this building like a hut for instance it's just a lot of work they think but it honestly doesn't seem like that much work like in a week you could probably build a small a small kind of livable hut yeah some sort of dwelling place yeah uh not including electricity or not including electricity and water those will take a bit more time but the, the basic bare bones and yeah that might be quite a bit of work however you get to keep that you get to then have this place where you can go inside and hang out and you built it with your own hands and something about that just feels more appealing and this is kind of funny coming from me because I've never been one of those people that has been like a craftsman or big either into tools or of us. building anything like that. No, yeah. The act seems appealing to me. What do you think about all this? I haven't really left you much space. You haven't. Uh, domineering as per usual. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, look, our friend,
1: he's always just derailing his sidekick Steve here. He's just trying to get a word in. <laughs> sidekick Steve, that is you. Sidekick Steve, yeah. always just trying to get a word in. You
0: just get, Can't get a word in edgewise. Phil's no. talking for the sake of talking, even right. though that's both of us according you, to your parents. No, you really love the sound of your own voice. <laughs> that's just me, is it? Yeah, just you.
1: Anyways, what are my thoughts on your land project? Well, uh, it's interesting that you're going towards crafting.
0: In relation to internalized capitalism.
1: Well, it's kind of a sidestepping internalized capitalism. And and you're saying, I just want to live simply close to the land off of something I've built myself and pursue my capitalistic endeavors there. Sort of interesting because you, you are planning to do a business from that, environment. So in a way you're Mm, you're jumping away No, hold on.
0: I'm going to stop that because that's, I think the fear that people are going to have. If I invite them there, they might think that I'm going to try to incorporate them into doing work for me, where I'm going to be the capitalist benefiting from their labor, not the intent. No. (laughs) Just to clarify that.
1: I'm speaking with a little bit of uh, background understanding- part of your goal and if you want to speak about it is to monetize uh, your your website and so that you're mm-hmm. getting a, a relative stable background uh, passive income through ad revenue and digital products and, and so forth
0: mm-hmm.
1: right and and that would be funding the land project uh and the land project for you know, on its own is for the sake of just leisure enjoyment uh passion for creating something. Yeah. So the land project on its own is not an entrepreneurial capitalistic endeavor, but it looks like there's kind of a business that's funding it that, that perhaps is,
0: I guess there is also still another aspect of capitalism that's kind of tying in there. Cause I mean, I think, There was a quote, I can't remember what it was. It was by Jack Donaghy in 30 Rock, but he was talking about how businessmen used to be about making things, about creating something that they actually wanted to see exist and not just purely about extracting value and rent seeking. And I think in this context, I think giving people space to exist and to interact, having people from various fields and uh, expertise coming together and just hanging out and being able to have the time and space and equipment to work on things that they would want to work on would inevitably end up making products and stuff that could end up helping improve their lives and Mm -hmm. further making more money. So it's not like the entire goal is to make money, but the goal is to make valuable things that people would actually want, not just like kind of improving minusculely on stupid things or deviating by printing some stupid logo on something Uh, more just actually trying to well maybe even just research for instance you could look into that but uh yeah just creation but like i I don't want to again i'm avoiding (laughs) i'm careful a little bit here because of the the whole art commune is what the thing that people are going to think of i guess art would be an option for people to create i guess but i would rather personally i'm more scientific science minded Mm -hmm. and obviously philosophy and stuff like that so i'd probably spend more time writing and researching stuff and trying to, to make stuff but yeah, it's, it all kind of ties in.
1: Yeah. And so there's capitalist pursuits and investments that could go on in this space, but the space itself is not being monetized.
0: Right. I guess this is actually the idea came about because of a friend of mine who she just likes nature and stuff like that. She's actually an economist by, uh, discipline, or at least by training. Maybe I started expanding This idea somewhat because of thinking about internalized capitalism, because internalized capitalism means that you have to be constantly productive and that can actually lead to a little lower productivity because you're not resting, you're not taking care of yourself and you can't just be, you're constantly on this treadmill. Like, cause here in this, this apartment I'm renting now, I have to kind of stress a bit about making enough to afford rent while simultaneously trying to get enough money into my endeavors to grow them to a point where I can yeah. get out of this, get escape velocity, as I call it. Yeah. So it's it is related to internalized capitalism because it's kind of a, my reaction to it, where I think the government's seemingly just too corrupt. All uh, seem like they're not really doing anything about this. They're just further their goal seems to be further to just grow the GDP, but GDP measures kind of silly things a lot of the time. I just read a whole book. Yeah, we were going to talk about the books we read. Uh, I just finished a book on GDP specifically, the history and the future and... Uh, what, what it is, what alternatives we can use. And it's still a useful thing, but it seems like it's, it's by far not the best thing to be measuring mm-hmm. the country by. But like for that, they, they went into financialization of, of everything. So they, they believe that growing the GDP, it's growing because the financial sector is exploding. But the financial sector is a bunch of just complex rules about something that we've made up. So it's hard to see often how that's actually offering value to society. Other than making a select group rich, because I think it was only like twenty to thirty percent of people that actually invest in stocks at all. So, my reaction is this as an yeah. answer to the government's lack of action and seemingly unwillingness to do anything to actually help people, other yeah. than continue throwing yourself in this machine of capitalism. And if you haven't internalized it yet, then you're you're broken and flawed, and you would have to go to see somebody like Steve for help.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't victim blame. I mean, if people find themselves in bad situations, it's about how do we change the situation? And your land project is clearly almost like a countercultural decision to do something different and get off the hamster wheel of having to make all of this money to pay for your apartment, to buy nice things, which I mean, you're not bought into having to do that, but some people are. And you're constantly on this hamster wheel of this internalized capitalism of, I can't take a break. Because if I stop, everything's going to collapse.
0: Because that is the truth. Yeah. But okay, actually, I, I didn't know if you'd be willing to talk about this, but like your yeah. feelings about uh, money and your your social context making you feel like it's not enough and you constantly have to work to the bone as well. Because I feel like your standard of what would be good enough to stop and rest is much higher than mine. And the people around you kind of feed into that. Would you want to talk about that or do you just want to skip it?
1: Well, I, I guess we're always comparing ourselves to... Our context and others around us and uh, if it's normal that uh, people around you are are making like a hundred K a year type of salary situation that's like kind of it becomes almost your internalized metric of benchmark benchmark yeah it becomes a benchmark of what you should be doing in this internalized capitalism of if I'm only now at 80 for example I'm below the mark, yeah, but if you compare yourself to the the average you, you're probably above it, so that's the that's the idea that you're you're on this hamster wheel of uh, it's never enough, but what happens when it is enough and you're actually above the people around you well, you start comparing yourself to different people, yeah, so it's you're you're now your benchmark has risen and it's this almost hedonic treadmill it's something we we need to talk about in the future for sure of uh of constant uh, I can't rest, I need to. Make an empire.
0: One thing that you stuck with me, though, you said that stuck with me, was how, you know, people that are making 200k plus and they're either not spending anything at all. They're just misers or they're unable to even seemingly make their ends meet somehow. And that... (laughs) That, I guess, would be kind of shocking, but it seems neither group is desirable because like the one is like the extreme capitalist, like the kind of Protestant ethic you're talking about where they don't want to don't want to part with any of this this money that they've got because why should they? (laughs) Why should they enjoy their lives? But then the other one is spending too much and being flashy and living beyond their means, which all of us can do if we choose to. So like the whole lifestyle inflation with that. But then it can be really difficult to know, like, what is the actual measure? Because It actually seems like a bad idea to me to constantly associate with those people. On the one hand, it'll push you to work more and to earn more money. But on the other hand, that seems like you don't ever get to rest and relax and just be. It leads to things like, I think it was the movie Wall Street. The guy Mm -hmm. said he was working super hard so he could buy a motorcycle and ride it across China. I think it was. That only would cost like... $10,000 $10,000 at most, if you wanted to live fairly well in US dollars, if you're biking or motorcycling across China, like it's really cheap to live there. And that just is silly and leads us to uh, some another quote, actually, that I, I wanted to get your response on, which was, uh, I already sent it to you. You're familiar, but I'll read it out. Quote, who thought it was a good idea to spend your entire life in an office and only get to live life once you retire? End quote. Love it. That's your response. <laughs>
1: That's it. That's my whole response. No, I think that's something we've talked about before. And it's something that I've bought into, uh, I guess, early 20s mentality of um, what do I want to do? Well, let's go join the RCMP because I can retire. It was some crazy number. I was 20, 30, 40. It's like 25 years and you can retire, like full retirement or something like that. So
0: 45.
1: Yeah, it was something crazy like that. I can't remember the exact details, maybe 30 years. I forget. But I was like, Wow.
0: I can retire early. But it's funny because, like, if our projects work out, we could retire. Like, okay, so to me, retirement just means second career. Like you get to you could then you earn the ability to get out of the system and work on whatever the hell you want. And that's the whole project I'm looking at. Right. So, yeah, like that's. That's kind of funny.
1: (laughs) We're kind of doing it right now, but in different versions, and actually doing it, trying to do it sooner.
0: Oh yeah, much more supercharged. Because okay, the thing is, the current system internalized like capitalism in general doesn't want you to break out of the system. It wants you to keep putting in your dues, having to work your way up slowly, do the traditional route a lot of time. Because then the people who are currently making a lot of money through that system continue to do so. Disruption actually can't is actually really good for the economy, but it screws up what the people who are currently in the privileged positions. It challenges the system that's supporting them. So it's not great for them.
1: The traditional route is exactly that of you work your way up the corporate ladder and who's that profiting? It's profiting those who are most on the top and invested into these corporate entities. If you go that traditional route, you should expect to retire in your 60s. But what we're doing is almost trying to take an early retirement in our 30s.
0: Yeah, leveraging the size of the internet and the ability to sell to anyone anywhere basically create something of like really good value that people actually would want indefinitely, optimally and continue selling that and continue to offer things that they would actually want. I guess you really just need one, one good stool leg so that you can quickly use that leverage to create two or three more stool legs so that you can solidify your situation and make sure that it, it's working out. But yeah,
1: I, I think we're talking really vaguely about our entrepreneurial endeavors. And I don't think the average person listening would actually understand what we're doing and like, okay, are they doing some crazy get rich quick scheme retiring in the thirties? What's that all about? So I think it's helpful to explain it.
0: Uh, Do you want to? I can, but you, you complain about how I talk too much. So,
1: Well, let me start explaining then. So when we talk about our own entrepreneurial mini capitalistic endeavors, which are really miniature uh, engines to propel us outside of the dominant capitalist situation where you can often feel trapped and on the the hamster wheel and and so forth. What we're doing is creating uh, websites that are providing useful, relevant content to people who are searching for stuff in our area. For example, mine is in mental health and addiction. So we write a ton of content. People search for questions they have. They find our articles on Google they are satisfied with the answer, they find it useful, and, and we drive a bunch of traffic from this. And from that a uh, high number of traffic, we can monetize it through either putting ads on our website, uh, selling a, a digital product or an, uh, a digital course, uh, selling uh, services, for example, or a bunch of different things. Uh, I I chose not to go the advertising route, and I've kind of went the other way and doing more of a, a digital product I'm creating right now. But
0: the, and affiliates and, and,
1: and affiliate, yeah. So you can uh, link to Amazon books, and Amazon pays you a small cut for what people buy, or any other product on Amazon for that matter. And so this this is this is genuinely doing something that's trying to be helpful, and it's not trying to rip anyone off. And what you're able to do is actually provide value, create something that you truly value and there's no one telling you how to do it. And you create it and you put it out there into the world. And now you have the massive scale of the whole internet that you can sell to. And you're just one person. So you don't have to pay for a whole like department of anything. You don't
0: have to pay for. Your overheads are very low. You don't actually need that, that much capital to live.
1: Yeah. Costs are very, very, very minimal. And so you can scale your income huge without any cost. You need an internet connection. You need to pay for your website, which is super cheap. And so you can scale your way into a sustainable income that doesn't depend on your time. And so you're, you're no longer trading time for money.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about that. Which
1: then you can now put that time toward projects like your land project and not need to monetize it. You don't need to trick anyone into coming to your land and paying you. Yeah. It's all just for altruistic, uh, pro-social, collaborative, mutually beneficial uh, reasons. And so there's values here, which we might argue uh, are lacking in just traditional capital list uh, systems where it can often seem very valueless and and that's the kind of the corporate world where it's like uh your worth yeah. is dependent on a dollar sign. Almost like that Protestant ethic.
0: Or like we were saying in, in many other podcasts where how corporate social responsibility kind of initiatives a lot of the time mm. are purely just stuff they are saying so they can appeal to people's interests. They don't actually care. Mm. They're really following Max Weber's um, <laughs> light cloak. They're holding their values as a light cloak that can their, be thrown aside at any moment. Holding,
1: yeah, corporations <laughs> hold their values like a light cloak that can be cast aside at any moment. What Max Weber said in right. the Protestant ethic was... The, the Protestant <laughs> ethic is you hold your material possessions like a light cloak, and so you could see that that's uh, that's happening, but in in the very in a very twisted way.
0: Yes, I wanted to comment on the the trading time for money thing because that leads us same with that quote about how like spending your entire life and you only get to live once you retire. That leads into something I call the delayed life plan, where people like people all tell you about, tell about this project and they'll tell me stuff like, oh, I, I'm doing the same thing. I'm like, oh, really? Where? When? It turns out they're waiting 30 more years so that they can do it when they're old. And you're like, okay, then what... I don't understand mm-hmm. why you would put this off, just like the the motorcycle thing. But I think okay, time is money. They say, and trading time for money to me seems like a terrible plan. I'd rather just trade work, trade value, not time, or value, I guess, in the in the context that we're aiming for. Yeah,
1: that's what we're trying to do through our website: is trading value, not time. Yeah.
0: Well, there is time involved, but it's not like a dollar per hour rate, right? Like, so well, we're trying to. It takes time to make the value, but it's scalable. Yeah, and then optimally, it'll it'll be evergreen, so it'll be good from then on, yeah. or within a realistic amount of time. But I was saying like the time is money and money is also time because depending on the costs of your living, this is why the land project has appealed to me is because you can end up lowering costs so much that you don't have to worry that much about you can use a lump sum of money to buy back your time by investing in something like this. You can then figure out how to live off of that. And then you don't need actually that much money. You you buy your time back. Mm -hmm. But likewise, for like growing a business, if you don't know how to do something, instead of wasting the time learning it for something you only need once, you can just spend that money to get somebody to do it immediately, which then saves you all the time that they've put into learning that thing. And also, I was actually thinking about how you and I, we kind of use each other to outsource cognition a lot of the time. (laughs) Cognition and expertise you'll say something and I'll end up thinking about it and coming back with something and, and vice versa. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. It's like multiplying intelligence in a way that there's always kind of a, an intellectual uh, sounding board there where it's like a regurgitation. And then like, now you take the idea and then you'll think about it, toss it around and then you'll say something to me. And then and it kind of goes back and forth and we're kind of d- developing ideas. And I think that's what we're doing. We do this through text messaging, but I think the purpose of this podcast is to actually do it uh, audibly live.
0: Yeah. But again, that's, that's cause we are highly motivated to explore these things. I think on the metric need for cognition, we're probably fairly high and <laughs> on big five personality, it would be probably high openness as this well. This reminds me of what
1: we talked about yesterday in terms of if once we get our, uh, our time bought back, I guess you can say when you'd no longer have to trade time for money.
0: Oh yeah. The things we do
1: for, we would what do for would fun? we do for fun? <laughs> things that people would not normally do for fun uh, because
0: we're weird. so what was the thing that we were talking about yesterday that I said I would want to do and you also said you would want (laughs) to do? Yeah,
1: maybe you can talk about that. So what would we do if we just had leisure time and could do that? Okay,
0: one thing, I would basically be doing... I would try to be acquiring a lot of skills. I like a lot of hobbies and insights. Clearly, I like things from a variety of areas. So one of the things I wanted to learn to do is cold reading. So I would like to set up a bench or some sort of like a table, I guess, in a park one summer and just spend the entire summer, eight hours a day <laughs> to like a full time job, giving out free palm readings so that you can practice the skills. So I guess maybe four hours a day and then four hours of like studying and refining. Uh, but like just getting it to a level where you can actually do that at a functional level, because it just seems like I'm, I'm curious how those people view the world and how how this works because i I know there are fundamental skills involved but it'd be interesting and do you want to talk about the thing that we were mentioning yesterday just
1: recall this is not going to a park and doing palm reading to like trick people to get their money and you know it's not scammy it's like purely doing it because you want to develop your cold reading skills and so i think often when we mention things these silly types of things There's that internalized capitalism in the audience. Assuming I'm doing it for profit. There's an an automatic assumption of like, oh, how are you going to make money doing that?
0: Uh, Well, actually, one of the responses I've gotten from people when I said like, I want to live in Japan and see how long I can. I just want to go there. That's another thing I would do for fun. I would go there and I would only speak, read, digest in every possible platform. It would just be Japanese. No English whatsoever. English is forbidden for six months just to see how long it would take me to get to a conversational level and just sink or swim, basically. Wow. We couldn't talk for six months then. Basically what they, my friend said is, why would you want to learn Japanese? And I'm like, cause I want to, <laughs> just cause I, I want to just to try it. Like I can speak Chinese. Okay. But well, you
1: should learn Mandarin because you're going to make more money off of that. You can get a job.
0: Yeah. Well, that's the underlying assumption a lot of the time. Like my dad was focusing on how like, Oh, I'll look great right on your resume. And I'm like, I don't ever plan to apply for a job again if I can avoid it. <laughs> so, so I, I have not updated my resume in a long time and it's been okay. And I hope to never have to do that again. Yeah. The very fact of wanting to do something just for the sake of discovery and understanding seems lost on people who are fully bought into internalized capitalism. Who have internalized Because capitalism. if you're not doing it for increasing your value... So, who have, yeah. yeah, who have internalized it. They, they seem to think that it's it's completely purposeless to pursue anything that's not going to end up making you money. And this is kind of a weird paradox because, like, we're both business minded people who can figure this very out. Very
1: business minded.
0: Yeah. And it's not like we don't understand, like, the basics of these things. And I have read enough on economics to know about, like, form opinions, at least semi educated on these topics. And I, I think people will assume that if we take these perspectives, then obviously either we don't understand or we're obviously not very successful. There's a quote here I have from a guy named Sean. Sean is a bread tuber, which is like far left, often Marxist kind of people. I listen to them just to see what the take is. Don't always agree, but it's it's interesting at least. So this tweet he says is, <laughs> this is a paradox. It's a kind of making fun of what happened to the early pandemic when they're telling people that if they can't afford their rent, then they should go and get extra jobs and stuff mm-hmm. during the pandemic. And so he was flipping that on, his, on its head. So here it is. Quote, if you're a landlord worried about tenants not paying rent, here's some advice. Just rely on your savings. Tap into the rainy day fund. Borrow money off your parents. Sell your iPhone. You really should have planned ahead for something like this. It's not too late to go back to school and learn a trade. Apply yourself. Print some resumes and go hand them out. End quote. (laughs)
1: Because
0: that's the advice that's given from the top to the bottom a lot of the time. Or the middle and the bottom. We're all kind of grouped together at this point. Yes. Got it. Yeah. Flipping it on its head. Very nice. I like that quote. And another, I guess the last one. There's only three things I have left on this that I I thought I over-researched but I think the the conversations worked out well enough. The other quote I pulled was, quote, this is why we don't like working because we know that deep down working for a big company is feeding the same beast currently victimizing us, end quote.
1: And, and how would you characterize that victimization? Because some people will be like, I'm not a victim.
0: Uh, the victimization is basically what I was saying, like the inability to just merely exist where you feel like, I mean, I guess if you have a full time job and you don't have to have take home work, then you may not relate with what we're talking about. Because at night you might feel like, OK, I have enough money. I'm comfortable. I don't need to do anything. And I can go out and spend money and still have savings left over for the future. Yeah. No worries. If you're in that situation, then you have no fucking idea. You have no idea what we're talking about because. Yeah. Because you don't have this constant economic stress, but you're also in a tenuous position because what if that job dries up? I guess if you're really well-secured, then you're fine. But a lot of times it seems like at this point, a single job, it doesn't feel secure enough that we feel the need to constantly keep producing more Mm -hmm. to monetize all of our time. And even this friggin' podcast, I'm trying to monetize my curiosity so that we can get the hell out of that system and maybe help people at the same time. Like optimally, you would be doing both. Right. Like the palm reading, I, I was thinking about how it seems selfish because I'm just doing it for myself, but optimally it would be entertaining for the people that I'm, I'm providing the service to.
1: Well, ideally, of course. And so that brings us to what else would we do with our time if we didn't have to trade time for money and we could just do things throughout the day. So you would do palm reading. Another one, when we were talking about yesterday was showing up at uh, town hall and Asking questions during question period, whenever you're able to, and just continuing to do that at every meeting. And by the very, <laughs> very nature of just being there all the time, you'd actually garner influence.
0: Yeah, you'd, you'd become a prominent figure in local politics. In <laughs> local
1: politics. Because there's
0: this yeah. actually... Th- this is a real woman that did this. I think she was an elderly woman. I don't know her name, but she. It was in the states, I believe. Just showed up because she had time. She just showed up every time and would participate and actually helped to improve her community because she was there representing yeah. it. Because most people can't do that. That's actually, uh, I think it was that video I sent you. We referenced it in the last episode as well, where it was talking about the right to laziness or the, the merit of laziness. Because you cannot actively participate in society or politics if you don't have time to do exactly. so. Even if you're very politically minded, you can't get represented because you can't go out and have your voice heard. You don't have time or energy. Well, you can vote, but that's
1: uh, that's like this very time-limited thing. You just do your vote. And and you're done with it.
0: But I mean, even further than that, like they they won't give people time off to go and vote, which seems incredibly undemocratic. And if you don't have a polling station near you, like they push to have polling stations either very limited. Trump did this in their, their past election. He tried to limit the number of polling stations in places where they would be likely to not vote for him, causing these giant long lines of people lined up. And then I think they tried to make it illegal to give water to people waiting in line. So you were not allowed to give anything wow. to allow them to stay in the line so they could do their democratic duty. Like, it's so mm-hmm. stupid. Clearly, they just don't. They're trying to suppress votes. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of neither. It's it's, it's all tied in together.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so the reason why we would show up to these town halls and ask all these questions and grill the politicians. And, and try to make things better. People might say, what are you trying to run to be a politician now? And that's, again, the internalized capitalism that uh, we have to do it to gain power
0: and, uh, and create an empire and, and so forth. Uh, that's not so much capitalism as it might be um postmodernist theory or um hmm. what what theory structure is that i think it is postmodernism well, that believes that everything i guess boils down to power i'm right?
1: thinking more about a like people think you're doing it to get a job as a career politician in a sense potentially
0: that's more neoliberalism the i guess the the core tenet of neoliberalism is that everyone is always doing something for selfish reasons but if you think about even i was saying this about identity politics it also kind of argues the same because like if i say say me a white guy criticizing a tenet of feminism even if i'm coming from a feminist perspective and I am a feminist they would still say that I'm doing I'm only saying that because I am trying to gain something myself or I right. must be doing it to benefit my own group the the modern trend currently seems to think that everyone always and, and irrevocably is selfish and we cannot escape that yeah. and that overlooks a big uh, at least a corner of, of humanity, right? And I think
1: a big reason why we would do something like this is because it's just entertaining for us for some odd reason, like that we'd want to just. <laughs>
0: I, I think it's being wise asses and playing with the rules because like, it, it, <laughs> it, it, a lot of the, the standard assumptions of these things is that it's feckless. We can't bother. Why bother? It's kind of learned helplessness. Yeah. Like I mean, I'm, with that 10 thing, people keep telling me. So I'm trying to think of a way that we can kind of have a happy medium so that we can have expanded space that's safe for people to eat during the pandemic while allowing businesses to still make more money uh, and not over like and then people are not just stuck in their house. When I'm proposing this, talking about what possible objections there are, people just say, oh, don't even bother. The government's never going to do that, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what? we're never going to get anything done if we don't believe we can actually influence governance. We can, but we have to actually put effort and try. Yeah. So
1: there's two reasons why we're we're deciding to get uh, become civically engaged once we buy ourselves some time. Once we fire ourselves. Once we fire ourselves, yeah. Once we retire uh, through our projects that we've described before. So part of it is a selfish reason of because it's just fun. And for some odd reason, we find this type of thing fun. But then the other one is actually uh, civic engagement
0: is is lacking., yes. and there's
1: a value in that we think that things could be actually run a lot better than they are. And we want to be able to contribute.
0: We both think that we should demand more from government yeah. instead of just being like Ronald Reagan saying that the, gov- the government is the problem. That's clearly not no, no, true. Because no. like, if we think about it, even with this whole thing, like pushing for neoliberal capitalism, where it was like, let, let the markets do what they do. That's the best thing for everybody. Small government, libertarian, yeah. Yeah, the, the problem is that like, think about it currently, we've got corporations, tech corporations in specific, but corporations more generally so large that they're actually more powerful than governments. Google, probably more powerful than pretty much any government at the moment because it knows everything. A lot of these governments, like the US, for instance, their politicians are extremely vulnerable to information because their voters care. So Google has leverage on them. They have so much money, they could basically hire a standing army in an instant by getting mercenaries on board and they could also just influence international politics. So if we do weaken government and we don't reign in these companies, then we all will still be ruled by a ruling class. But in this case, it'll be going back to kind of like serfdom slash feudalism, where we have local barons with militaries, standing militaries. Whoever's the richest is the one that owns us. And that doesn't sound great to me. And that's kind of where we're headed.
1: That's the ultimate, uh, I guess, sociological critique of uh, dystopian neoliberal future, which is a real mouthful. But, uh, <laughs> it is the idea that every person will have their own privatized uh, security? You will live in gated communities. We'll have our own little mini militias and so forth. And everything's just privatized. Uh, if the air goes bad and everything is just smog, well, you can buy better air and better filters for your filtration systems, yeah. get a
0: bubble. Yeah.
1: And so everything is the market now, and that's rampant capitalism. And it really changes governance. And so what we're foreseeing is we're, we're looking at a critique of a potential rampant capitalist neoliberal future whereby everything's privatized. And we want something better than that. We see the value in government, not huge dominating big government, but not no government or very, very minimal, small government too.
0: not letting people fall below a certain level. Like we live in a a country with other people and we should want to get the best from them. This is Mm -hmm. okay. Some people believe that there's no such thing as altruism. And I kind of believe that to myself because like even doing good acts, you feel good for having done them, Right. but you're still doing good acts primarily. And in this case, if we want to say, fine, everyone's selfish. My selfish reason, I guess, for this is that for improving society is to make society the best it can be for any given person. You want to have everyone being able to produce the gifts that they've got. If you're able to do something, we should want to enable you to do that thing well Mm. so that we can all benefit from your work doing that. I know, uh, what's his name? Milton Friedman argues that this is confusing democracy and capitalism, but he believes capitalism allows us to be free in that way. But the thing is, it's such a ridiculous notion because you have to have the time, like, I've started thinking about a term I've not heard anywhere but called economic coercion where okay the economic model from economists a lot of time is that you cannot be forced to do anything you take a job if it's worth doing but uh, if you don't like it you don't like the pay or the conditions then you leave and find another job this assumes that you can do that (laughs) this assumes that the job doesn't require so much time and energy to just suck the life out of you so you can't find another job and supposing there are even other jobs that are easily found but chances are especially these days they're not it all kind of does doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, a random jump. Unless you have something to say to that. Yeah.
1: It's the idea that capitalism equals freedom is a little bit flawed in the, in the sense of exactly that. There's a complete uh, corporate market freedom, uh, but uh, your personal freedom, technically you can just choose to not work at a place and go work somewhere else. But as you said, the economic coercion is now so high that what kind of freedom is that?
0: Yeah, it's not at all. It's you're only free if you're wealthy enough. If you're not working class, working mm-hmm. class being anybody that cannot survive off of what they have indefinitely without work. If you have to work at all, you're part of the working class. Yeah. There is also then the alternative is the leisure class. They're the only ones that are truly free because they can do whatever the hell they want. After a certain level of income, fines are just tickets of entry. If you want to just park your car wherever you want and you're going to get towed or you're going to get like huge fines for doing it, it's just the price of doing it. And if that's nothing to you, then it's, it's not going to change your behavior. You can do literally whatever you want at that point. Buy your way through. Find really good lawyers. Also, I was laughing. Oh man, you might find this hilarious. Yesterday I was talking about if you're... (laughs) if you're really rich, hiring lookalikes, having a team of lookalikes, just hanging out in the vicinity of wherever you might be. Because then if you ever do anything illegal or do something bad on camera or whatever, you could legitimately argue in court with a good lawyer. You could argue that there is a reasonable doubt that that is not you. You didn't hire <laughs> these lookalikes to do these things. You just hired the lookalikes to be around and to li- mill about in the vicinity of you doing whatever they want. So you're not getting them to do anything wrong. They might do something wrong, We you can't really say one way or the other but you can't for certain say which one it is
1: oh i love that that's hilarious a way to game the system of uh yeah reasonable doubt yeah because you can you can
0: totally do that why why not you could say it's for security reasons but then you could also use it for legal defense
1: oh so your bodyguards are all like body doubles so that not only are you protected, you're wearing the
0: same thing every day
1: <laughs> you're walking around like a bunch of <laughs> twins Oh, so that's like the ultimate dystopian neoliberal future is everybody has a like body double bodyguards, So they're pr- protected physically and legally in court. If they do something wrong, there's reasonable doubt whether it's them.
0: Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> ultimate protection. Ultimate
1: protection yeah. everywhere.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, reasonable doubt, reasonable doubt. And you're like, well, what if you hired the guy to do it? Reasonable doubt. Doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. So I wanted to jump uh, over to Burning Man. It's the last thing I wanted to cover yeah. before I close with the story. So Burning Man, what do you know about it? They Big festival, uh it's kind of Uh collectivistic. Somewhat. Sorry, does that yeah. People barter uh skills. So they,
1: if you have a skill in knitting and the other person has a skill in palm reading, you can trade skills and I can teach you how to knit and you can teach me how to palm read.
0: Trade services, yeah. So the, it's actually, it started off a bit more, it has actually 10, 10 rules that seems to have violated to my thinking. So just, just to be clear, in 2018, the revenue was $46 million according to federal tax documents. The tickets cost an arm and a leg, all in U.S. dollars. The pre-sale tickets are $1,400. Main sale tickets are $425. Late tickets are $550. I don't really understand the structure. Why is the pre-sale almost three times or over three times the main sale price? I don't really get Maybe it. If you get better, better area, better space. Maybe, but I figure it's just like rich people will, will pay. Or also, I'm wondering if to deter scalpers, maybe. But uh, kids 12 and under can go for free. It's weird to me thinking that kids are even going to be at this event because, from what I know of it, it's going to be a lot of nudity, sex, and drugs, as well as music. Yeah, Burning Man
1: reminds me of like a modern day uh, commune environment.
0: Pagan festival. Kind of somewhat yeah like apparently the the gift economy causes people to feel very different towards each other just toward strangers you build relationships faster apparently hmm. and that's one of the main appeals to it kind of like there are some weird things when it comes to groups for mass psychology like marching for instance it causes people to bond more quickly it's it's odd or same with chanting or singing together just doing things in unison seems to bond people faster and this seems to be another weird psychological hack that doing non-monetary exchanges some sort of bartering and and gift economy seems to help people bond faster. Right. So what I found kind of galling too for these ticket prices, I wasn't quite done there yet, is that approved applicants in need can apply for cheaper tickets. So remember the main sale tickets are four hundred and twenty five dollars. What do you think the impoverished people applying for this, what, what do you think they're paying? Uh, I don't know,
1: ten dollars. <laughs> $210. Whoa, that's barely any different.
0: I mean, it's half, but it's still like, really? And then you have the transportation costs and all the other stuff. CNBC estimated the total cost was $1,300 to camp in a tent. I'm not really sure. This includes transportation, food, camping fees, costumes, and gifts, uh, and up to $20,000 for glampers. But I, I don't really know the time frame of how long they're staying. Money estimated a four-day trip there. That one actually has a framing. It says that a four-day trip would be $2,218 for four days. And that includes... Camping toys, camp decor survival supplies food and drinks and toys and getting there yeah it's it says 360 for toys and camp decor toys it's a big festival where you're having fun yeah it's it's not for children no but it's it's kind of people would say it's kind of infantile because you're going there and you're kind of living this like primal yeah. more primal existence where one of the rules is not actually barter and exchange it's supposed to be a gift economy you're supposed yeah. to give stuff without expectations i'll get to the rules in a second i'm just talking about the money now because it's relevant i'm going to go through where i think it's going to become corrupted one of the interesting things about it though is that no matter where you are inside burning man there are no prices with the exception of coffee and ice ice is three dollars apparently so burning man is based on a sharing community and is quote-unquote commerce free is what they claim commerce free once you get in the door i guess yeah but it seems super paradoxical, doesn't it, yeah. that you have to pay an arm and a leg to get there and to bring all your stuff. But then once you're, in, you're paying an exorbitant amount to get inside somewhere where things are then free, like it's like a vacation from capitalism. Sort of. But like if you think about it, like if you just average out the cost for the things that you're in there, it'll be a different experience. Granted, that's that would take away the magic. Like it seems ridiculous. Like you're still paying for it all mm. just up front and for different things but it's still being paid for. Yeah. It's not escaping capitalism. It's just like pseudo escaping capitalism, paying a lot of money to live for free. Like, yeah, it seems like a paradox, doesn't it?
1: Oh yeah. The, 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 paradox of all of this quite astounding. I didn't realize
0: it was, uh, so heavily monetized, but, uh, makes sense. Yeah. 40, 46 million. But you want to hear their, their values? They, the guy who made it, it started with this guy who built a effigy, basically shaped like a man and in, went to a dry part of the desert and burned it with a bunch of people and people liked it. So he kept doing it. He came up with 10, rules 10 values that he ascribed to and i think this is the origin of burning man yes and i think that it has somewhat or at least it has come to be violating four or five of the 10, 10 values okay so the first one radical inclusion everyone is welcome that is clearly violated because of the cost to get in like 210 plus transportation plus all of the supplies you need to have yeah i don't think that includes everybody and toys yeah Whatever you you really fixate on that (laughs) Two gifting. People should give gifts to each other without asking for anything in exchange. This one seems semi violated to me because of one of the rules down lower, but you could argue it's sustained because they still kind of have this gift economy. The third is decommodification. People should not let money get in the way of having an experience. I think the very act of charging such amounts to get in violates that very clearly Mm -hmm. because only certain people can go. So one and three are very connected. They're both violating each other for the same reason. Number four is radical self-reliance. People as running man should take care of themselves and not ask others to take care of them. I mean, people would argue that the gift economy, because people are just freely giving stuff to each other, then I don't. You're not self-reliant then if you're still getting people to give you stuff. So I don't really. I'll say semi-sustained, but number two, the gifting one seems to kind of clash. Number five, radical self-expression. Everyone should share what makes him or her special. That seems to be sustained. Yep. Communal effort is number six. People at Burning Man should cooperate to make the festival good and safe. I guess you can cut me off at any time if you have something you want to say. And these, these, these values
1: things. seem to be more sustained. It was more of the inclusion piece was contradicted.
0: Well, civic responsibility. Everyone. Sh- people should be good citizens. Unknown because that's another, it's a really undefined term and I've not actually gone. So uh, I hear they actually behave well inside. So I would like to think that that's sustained, but unknown. Leave no trace. People should clean up after themselves. After they leave, there should be no sign that anybody was ever there. This I found is semi-violated because it seems that people are actually very, very thorough in cleaning. And it's part of the ethos of being there. You People used rakes and went through the sand and picked up everything they could down to like six inches deep. But the problem then is that all the surrounding areas are inundated with trash. So just like huge amounts of trash in the nearby municipalities because of Burning Man. So technically in the desert, they're leaving no trace, but they're still making a big impact on the the cities around who then have to handle that without probably making too much more money off of that. It depends on how much money is brought in. Number nine is participation. Second last rule. Everyone should join in and not just watch, let's say sustained. And uh, 10 is immediacy. People should not let things stop them from learning about themselves. I don't know exactly what that means. Not let things stop them from learning about themselves. If they mean objects, yeah, that let's let's say sustained. But like of those one, two, three, four, five ish are either violated or semi-violated. Yeah, I mean the idea of going there. It sounds like it could be a fun trip. Oh yeah, I still want to do it. This is this is not saying that like it's not worth doing or that it's not a good experience. Yeah. It seems great, but it's just. It seems that the spirit's been corrupted by what we're talking about—capitalism,
1: right? And it's it's an interesting experience, but
0: it's not very revolutionary. I guess you can say like it's almost like you do it. It's it's a throwback. What's that? It's a throwback to like barter systems and uh, less developed economies, basically.
1: There's a political side to this, and there's a critique of the way things are done in modern society. In a sense, and it's a it's an escape. And there's values there. But it's really so temporary and fleeting. What we're talking about in terms of our projected goals, and particularly with your land project, it's taking the same ethos and making it sustainable so that you're not just going away for a a vacation from your corporate job, letting off a bunch of steam at Burning Man, and then going back and being miserable for the rest.
0: Yeah, you're earning a week of happiness through a year of drudgery.
1: Exactly in a sense that's what can keep you locked in because it's it's the just enough respite so you can recharge and then go back to something that you're you're not quite satisfied with
0: it's like two weeks of vacation a year kind of thing like i always i wrote an article once called uh, the best way to travel and i think uh, the problem is people only get two weeks a year and so to travel like that you basically go and use a country as a resort kind of like a cheap hotel that's somewhere else with better climate and then you leave the problem is that those countries end up adapting to the tourists because that's where all the money's coming from. And the local culture gets kind of stamped down because they're just trying to conform to, I don't know, American or European or wh- whichever uh, tourists from abroad. Completely.
1: Yeah, I noticed this in Greece. It's, it's almost as if the culture j- just feels like a big giant tourist culture.
0: Yeah, like kind of funhouse kind of version of it. Yeah,
1: it's very, very kitschy and they've almost created these things everywhere where it's the idea of what you think is Greece, Greek, and they put it everywhere.
0: Yeah, kind of like a butter chicken. Butter chicken was invented in England, but then the British people said they wanted to try authentic butter chicken. So then they went to India and it got spread from England to India because people kept going to India and wanting to try butter chicken. So then now this British dish inspired by Indian food is now in India being sold to people who are going there wanting it to be authentic, but it's actually not part of their... Oh, so interesting. It's not part of their traditional cuisine. So it's just this weird warping of countries because of kind of being dancing monkeys of sorts. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Because I have one story I wanted to close on. Yeah, I And
1: mean, that's the that's the commoditization of culture. And, and, and it, and it yeah. makes culture very shallow and everything's just about like these ideas of images of what we think something is. And there's really not a lot of weight to those thin veneers. I mean,
0: taking it even a little further, Japan actually has, I think, full, like to scale, recreations of famous locations elsewhere from the world. Like they've actually built... I can't remember which what it was modeling. I think it might have been Venice or something, but they were they they built a to scale a model of that that people can go and, and visit to stay in Japan, but be able to experience what it would be like to be in this physical place, which kind of is like stripping away everything of the culture except for the physical elements of it. It just is so odd. They have to work so much that I don't think they can get away. They don't can't have the time to to leave the country. Or maybe they just don't speak another language because Japanese is quite difficult, and not that broadly spoken. So maybe they just go there as like a, a kind of substitute.
1: Mm, yeah, it's very odd, a very odd thing. And you can see this in kind of Disneyland ideas stuff as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, pretty pretty much exactly that. So what's that story you had? All right. So it's called The Mexican Fisherman. So an American investment banker was at the pier of a coastal Mexican village and he sees a small boat with a fisherman inside. And in that, he sees a bunch of really huge tuna. And so the American compliments the Mexican on the quality of his fish and asks how long it took him to catch. And he said, oh, only a little while. But then the American asked him, like, why didn't you stay out longer and catch more fish? The Mexican said that he had enough to support his family's immediate needs. The American's like, but what do you do with the rest of your time? So the fisherman says, I sleep late, fish a little, play with my children, take siestas with my wife, stroll into the village each evening where I sip wine and play guitar with my friends. I have a full and busy life. The American scoffed. I'm a Harvard MBA and could help you. You should spend more time fishing with the proceeds. Buy a bigger boat. Then with the proceeds from the bigger boat, you could buy several boats. Eventually you could buy a whole fleet. Instead of selling your catch to the middleman, you could then sell them directly to the processor and eventually open your own cannery. You could then control the products, processing, and distribution. Eventually, you'll have to leave this small village and move to Mexico City, then maybe Los Angeles, and eventually to New York, where you can run your expanding empire. Fisherman asked, but how long would that take? Oh, 15 to 20 years. Eh, but what then? The Mexican asked. The American laughed and said, that's the best part. When the time is right, you would announce an IPO and sell your company's stock to the public and become very rich. You would make millions. Millions? And then what? Oh, then you could retire. You could move to a small coastal fishing village where you could sleep late, fish a little, play with your kids, et cetera, et cetera. So the <laughs> American obviously has internalized capitalism, thinking that that's the best way to do it. The Mexican is doing perfectly fine. I guess you could argue that he's fragile because if there's a huge disruption from, right. say, a corporation killing the local fish, uh, that would be yeah. make him a little more vulnerable. But he's already got what he needs.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, uh, particularly aside... That story really makes you, you feel like, what is the point of it all? Why do I want to build an empire? What did I sign up for? And yeah, it's looking at valuing the simple things. And he said, well, if I had everything, I would just do what I was doing right now.
0: Yep, exactly. I think that's probably a good place to, to leave off because there's no real take home message from this, just something to consider and yeah. a lens to look at things with. Again, I love your ending. Uh, great story. Love that story. I love your interpretation, Steve. There, take it back.
1: <laughs>
0: Mutual. Are my
1: compliments <laughs> making you insecure?
0: No, it's just every single episode. You, we, I will wrap it up, and you're like, I love your ending. So I feel like I should probably say something back. I think they're objectively good.
1: Not not just me, but uh, our fellow listeners can likely also agree that you you do provide nice conclusions
0: to the topic. <laughs> Well, hopefully, people appreciate them. Hopefully. You better appreciate it. It's my
1: valuable time. My valuable time. I could be making money right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although, actually, one of the points I was, I guess, wrapping up time is money, I think is wrong because time is infinitely more valuable than money. And again, this is kind of like the Memento Mori episode. Yeah. We should focus on what it is we actually want to be doing with our time what are we actually struggling so hard for yeah. and is there a way to short circuit the system to get there faster exactly exactly Yeah. all right thank you for listening in you can find more from me at hittingajacks.com and i guess makeaskillcheck.com is my dnd website steve
1: you can uh, find out more about what i do at steverosephd.com uh, a bunch of articles
0: on there on mental health and addiction. One final thing, please leave us uh, comments and a rating because that helps us out. If you like us, uh, share us with friends and all that stuff. You know know what to do. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Take care.
1: Recording, 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 recording
0: let have the mic on three. This is second. I'm just uh, a bitter fool. A bitter fool. You, you do the welcome this time. It's always me. Welcome to the... <laughs> <sighs>